And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. Of course, it's uh, Monday. And uh, yeah, we're back at it after your Easter holiday. I hope you had a wonderful Easter holiday with your family. But so sorry, back to work. Well, for I guess for a few people, right? There's there's a lot of people off today. So, <laughs> you know, if you're off today for Easter, it's great. Happy holiday. If not, like in the financial markets, banks can't be closed more than three days in a row. So we're back to work today. So is it like the Easter hangover? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, so a couple of things uh, to get into this week, of course, is we've got inflation data coming out, right? So this is going to be the big CPI report, the big question there. How, how is that going to look, right? What is this going to do in terms of the Federal Reserve? Is that number going to come down enough to maybe get the Federal Reserve to back off a bit? I doubt it. Um, the other big question, of course, is as we start heading into the next FOMC meeting, this is going to be the, you know, the big issue. Are they going to cut rates, hold tight, or hike rates, right? This is, this is the big debate with the market. Now, the market it continues to hold up here very well on expectations that the Fed will pause and stop hiking rates. Now, the problem was is that the employment report on Friday, while it came in about 20,000 jobs shy of estimates, was still pretty strong. So there's not really a big turn here that says that, well, the economy's weakening markedly, which would bring down inflationary pressures. So again, the employment report was really not Fed friendly in terms of them starting to think about pausing rates, much less cutting rates. And again, what the market expects right now is that by July of this year, the Fed will be cutting rates. But the data really doesn't suggest that that's going to be the case. Inflation is still remains fairly strong here. And again, unless we just see a big collapse in inflation in the next couple of months, can't see the Fed really moving into a, a, a position where they're actually cutting rates. They may pause here because uh, they have hiked aggressively last year. We're up to 5% near kind of what their terminal rate is. So maybe they'll pause, right? Maybe they'll stop hiking rates temporarily, but I can't, really can't see them cutting anytime soon. Uh, that's going to put pressure on financial markets. The other side of the employment data also is that the labor force participation rate has been rising. So in other words, more people coming back into the labor force having to work. We're, we're not back to where we were pre-pandemic yet, but the uh, the percentage of the labor force participation is coming up. And that's an interesting story, right? Think about it. So going into the March 2020 kind of pandemic shutdown of the economy, we had labor force participation rate, you know, at, at about 63, 60, 63.5%. So when we shut down the economy, obviously people can't go to work. So we had a big, big drop, just a, a, a sheer cliff of labor force participation, right? Because we just told people, hey, you can't come to work. So they're sitting at home. Now, since then, we've had $5 trillion worth of stimulus. We've had this whole talk about, oh, there's so many job openings. We have like two job openings for every person out there that needs a job. But yet we're not even back in terms of labor force participation to where we were pre-pandemic. So if all these jobs are out there, where are all the laborers that are supposedly needing these jobs? So this really kind of is, is part of the problem with all of this economic data is that a lot of it just doesn't make any damn sense. That's, you know, if we've got two job openings for every person, 
then why isn't the labor force participation rate back to where it was? Or is there just that many people decided, well, I just don't want to work anymore, so I'm just going to sit at home. Yeah, there's certainly the, the retirement thing, but we're seeing a lot of retirees having to go back to work to make ends meet because of what? Inflation. So none of this stuff really makes a lot of sense. Nonetheless, though, the economy has recovered, right? The economic growth is growing. The Fed's been hiking rates to try to slow that economic growth to bring down the rate of inflation. Remember, what is inflation? It's when demand exceeds supply. And that's really all there is to it. Prices go up. That's why you have inflation. So in order to bring that inflation down, what do you have to do? Well, you've got to decrease demand so that supply will outstrip demand, bringing the prices down. It's just basic economics. So that's what the Fed is trying to do here by hiking rates is slow that demand structure. But that's not really happening that well because employment remains strong right now, at least on a trailing basis. And inflation still remains fairly abundant. Oil prices, as we talked about last week, uh, remain fairly elevated here. We're still up you know, near the $80 level. So again, you know, there are things that are putting inflationary pressures on the overall economy. And this is kind of the thing to, to, to focus on. Now, one thing we'll get into this morning, right after the break, obviously we're gonna get into earnings season, but just real quick, kind of a market update. Again, market rallied on Friday after selling off for two days. Um, we talked about the market kind of flirting with that downtrend line that we had coming back here from last April. And uh, that, that downtrend line held. So again, we now have a confirmed test of that breakout that we had in the markets. Markets are a little bit oversold on a really short-term basis, not on a, on a little bit longer-term basis. They're not overbought. I said over, oversold. They're not overbought um, on, on a long-term basis. And our buy signal is still in place. So again, the, the movement of the market still remains positively biased here. And again, this is the conundrum that a lot of investors have. I, I get a lot of emails every day talking about, I was like, What's going on with the market? Why is the market going up? There's all this news out there, all this data that says we're going to have a recession. Yeah, maybe. And, and that data is out there. In fact, you know, uh, as we've talked about here before on the show numerous times, I can make a very, very strong case for a recession in the next couple of months. Um, there's also data out there that suggests we won't have a recession. So what the market is telling you is that they're betting on no recession. The market is betting on two things right now. They're betting on a soft landing, no recession scenario improve, and improving earnings, right? Those kind of go hand in hand. And the other is, is that the Fed will be cutting rates. But again, we have to go back to that very simple question that nobody has answered yet, which is why would the Fed cut rates if everything is okay? If the market's doing okay, right? If markets are rising and there's no real sign of stress in the financial markets or the credit markets, yeah, we had a couple of bank issues, but that's been solved, quote unquote, uh, according to the Federal Reserve. Our banking system is sound. So if there's no risk in the financial markets, no risk in the credit markets, uh, employment is doing fine, economic growth is going fine, and inflation is coming down, why would the Fed cut rates? And this is the one question that the bears and the bulls both need to answer because the only time that the Fed is going to be cutting rates, which is what the, bull, the bulls are hoping for the Fed to cut rates because that means stock prices go up, right? That's the theory because that means easier monetary accommodation. What they miss is, is that during the rate cutting process, historically, that's when the Federal Reserve is fighting some type of event, either a credit event, a recession, bear market, or both. So, 
in that process of rate cutting, that is not when you want to own stocks. You want to own stocks when rates reach back to zero. Basically, when the Fed stops cutting rates, that's when you want to buy stocks. But the point here is, is that in order to get to those rate cuts, something has to have gone wrong. They're not just going to cut rates for the sake of cutting rates. The rate cuts are their tool to offset credit or financially related stress in the economy. They're not going to use that tool unless there is some type of stress that they are trying to offset. They are trying to minimize the impact of a recession, economic downturn, recession, bear market, etc. That's the reason they use rate cuts. So there's no reason to cut rates. And the Fed is saying, sorry, the markets are betting on the Fed to be cutting rates by July. But the markets are also betting on the fact that the bull market is back. Can't have both. So we'll see how how this works out. So this morning coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about earnings season getting underway. That actually starts later this week with the banks reporting earnings. Of course, that'll be very interesting considering the latest uh, kind of banking crisis to see what they say. We'll get into that right after the break. Get by the website. We went through reverse repo over this weekend in the newsletter. I had a lot of questions lately about what it means, this big $2 trillion spike in reverse repo. It's all in the newsletter at the website realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click on Insights, Newsletter, get you right there along with all of our archives as well so you can catch up on your reading, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What's new with Social Security this year? Our next Lunch and Learn will reveal seven things to watch in 2023. Thursday, April 13th at noon, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will share Social Security claiming strategies, the 2023 COLA, and earnings tests. Our What's New with Social Security this year Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso, April 13th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. the show. So this week, of course, is the beginning of earnings season. And this is that uh, quarterly anticipation of company announcements. What are they going to say? Of course, are they going to beat earnings? That's the big question. And of course, every earnings season, we always get some number like 80% of companies have beat earnings estimates. Isn't it wonderful? As I, uh, I have a chart this morning for you uh, uh, that was in this weekend's newsletter um, as we kind of you know start touching on this. This is the beginning of millennial earnings season. Um, and of course, you know what happens here and, and every year S&P comes out about March, they come out with their estimates for the following year. So if we go back to March of last year, and look at where they started their estimates and look at the changes over time, we can kind of see where earnings estimates have, have come to. And of course, you know, back in you know, February of 2022, they were expecting about $218 a share in earnings for the end of uh, you know, last year. Um, and now as we get into the first quarter of 2023, um, what we can see is, is that you know, these numbers have come down Basically, from a peak of about 225, that was in May. Analysts were actually hiking earnings into to May of last year. 
then they started kind of started realizing that maybe earnings wouldn't be able to hit that mythical mark. And of course, now we're down to about 172 for this quarter. And of course, now what will happen is, is that as we get into first quarter earnings, everybody will go, well, companies beat estimates. And this is why I call it millennial earnings season, because everybody gets a trophy. But again, you know, this is something that as investors, you know, we have to be cognizant of because it, it matters. Now, starting in March this year, they just came out with their 2024 estimates. Right now, S&P expects that by the end of 2024, earnings for S&P 500 companies will be back to where they were at the peak of the market in January of 2022. Now, think about that for a moment. We had a huge surge in earnings because of $5 trillion worth of stimulus coming into the economy, zero interest rates, $120 billion a month in QE, boosting the financial markets, which gave consumers confidence, right? So people went out and spent money, had $5 trillion to spend, which boosted revenues for companies at a time, right? At a time where they had sent a lot of their workers home. People were working from home. We had reduced labor, which boosted what? Profit margins. So S&P now expects that by the end of next year, with a return of full employment, let's just set the recession aside for a moment. Let's just say everything is perfect, okay? Everything's fine. I'm not saying that's the case, but let's just set the recession aside for a moment to think about what S&P is saying. So S&P is saying that without $5 trillion worth of stimulus, without half employment, now we're back to full employment, theoretically, which means higher payroll costs, benefit costs, payroll taxes, etc. And with inflation running fairly high, that companies are going to be able to generate the same amount of earnings that they were able to generate in January of 2022 with a very different backdrop. Right? Again, lots of stimulus still in the system back in January 20, leading up to January of 2022. Half employment, inflation wasn't raging yet, et cetera, so forth and so on. It seems like a pretty far stretch. Can it happen? Sure, it can happen. Seems like a stretch. And particularly, it seems like a stretch if you if you are in the camp that you think that there's a recession coming. That even becomes more problematic because if you have a recession, that means that inflation is falling, which means companies can't charge as much for their product. That's going to hurt earnings. People are getting laid off. They're not spending money. That's going to hurt earnings, right? So... How on earth can you get back to January 2022 peaks? In other words, it doesn't seem very realistic, but that's okay because earnings won't be there by the time that we get to January of 2022. I'm uh, sorry, 2024. Earnings won't be at the peak of where they were in January 2022. They've been re reduced a lot, right? And this is the problem with all this. So, But here's the point I'm trying to make to you is this. Let's assume for a moment that... We'll just use the peak in the 
first quarter of 2023 earnings, which was in May, that was $225.60 a share at that peak. Let's just use that as the number for a second. So you go out today and you go, wow, companies are going to earn $225.60 in earnings. Just using that number as a peak. Just, just, just pulling an example. So based on that number, I'm going to go out and buy stocks today because with the market trading at 4000 based on $225 a share, stocks are cheap on a forward PE basis, right? This is the whole argument from Wall Street, which is simply saying, hey, stocks are cheap based on these earnings because look at the PE ratio on these forward earnings. So if they get to that number, man, you know, stocks are well underpriced. You should buy stocks now. So you go out and you go, yeah, I think I'll do that. So you ran out in in May of last year buying stocks, thinking they were cheap at $225 a share. You wake up today and you realize that now earnings are $172 a share. Now, remember what you paid for it, right? I paid for a PE that I thought was cheap. Now, all of a sudden, stocks aren't cheap anymore because the E fell in valuations. This is the problem with forward earnings. This is why... Really, as an investor, you should not use forward earnings. Forward earnings have a lot of problems with them. First of all, they're based on just theoretical grabs. But B, they don't include any of the potential bad stuff that can happen, oh, like a recession. So you go out and buy things based on these forward PE assumptions that, oh, things are cheap. Because, boy, if they get to this number, you know what? I could say, you know what? If I had $10 million in the bank, I'd go do something crazy. Odds of me doing that aren't great. <laughs> so these are the, the, the things that you have to think about as an investor, which is, what does this mean long-term? And the, what is the reality that I'm going to hit those numbers? And, and look, I, you know, I'm not even talking about recessions or anything else i'm talking about is history is that analysts are always over optimistic on earnings when they first announce earnings they are always over optimistic by about 30 percent on average which means that over the course of time between the time they make their first estimate for a quarter's earnings by the time we get there they've come down by at least 30 percent or more And only in very rare occasions do they actually rise rather uh, versus expectations. 2020, 2020 was a good example of that. Expectations were for a fairly sharp drop in earnings. Earnings came out better. Why? Because we cut 50% of employment and gave people $5 trillion to spend. That wasn't baked into the cake, so earnings were better than expected. That happens very rarely, and it's, it's a function of anomalous events when those happen. Analysts are always overly optimistic. Why? Because they want to sell product. I need to sell you a stock, so I'm going to tell you that earnings are going to be high, so you'll buy it. That's why they do it. This is marketing. Oh, earnings are great. You should buy this company because they're just going to grow earnings through the roof, and it doesn't happen, but that's not their problem. They already sold you the stock. You're, you're, you own it. They don't. They made their money. You didn't. That's how Wall Street works. But I just want to keep you uh, focused on the fact that when we come into earnings this quarter, we're going to see a lot of earnings beats. You know, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, 
we didn't have all this interweb thing. So when companies announced earnings, you had to wait for the Wall Street Journal to print it, and it would take a couple of days for it to get to your house. So by the time that you got the update on what a company announced and it was written up in the journal and showed up in stock prices, people had already assessed kind of what that meant for earnings. So if they beat by a penny or missed by a penny, it's not that really, is, is it really that big of a deal? Think about it. When you buy a stock and a company comes out and says, well, we missed estimates, you know, estimates were for a dollar, we made 99 cents. And the stock goes down 10% in a day because they missed estimates. Is it really worth, I mean, a one penny miss of estimates one way or the other, right? You, you, you beat it by a penny, your stock goes up 10%. Stock misses a penny, goes down 10%. Is really the, the stock mispriced by that much? That a penny's difference in earnings matters. No, it's not. It's just a function of all these algorithms today that we've got driving the markets. That's what I'm saying. Back in the day, when before we had this, it took a couple of days for this to filter down. And so you didn't have these big knee-jerk reactions. People would go, oh, they missed by a penny because there was this one-off event that occurred. That I read, When I read their Q4 on their gap earnings statement, this is what happened. Makes complete sense. It's fine. The company's doing great. I'm going to buy some more shares. But now it's all about headline risk. Oh, they missed by a penny, so let's crush the stock by 10%. Makes no sense whatsoever. But this is the job that you have as an investor. You've got to parse all this stuff out. And that's the hard part. Okay, quick bait. Be right back. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so uh futures this morning kind of flat uh, this is after Friday's rally that uh, got markets back above their uh, kind of resistance level, support levels now, uh, holding onto that. Markets kind of really just anticipating what the Fed's next move is going to be. And again, this is the shame of it all, right? I mean, we're going into earnings season and everybody's like, okay, earnings, if, if earnings are really bad, then that's going to be good because that means the Fed's going to cut rates. I mean, this is, you know, we've gotten down to, we don't even pay attention to fundamentals anymore. It's just whatever the Fed's going to do. And that's not really a market. Right. Just goes to show you how much of the market has become dependent upon liquidity and interventions. And that's not really a free market. That's not market dynamics working in the manner that it's supposed to work. Of course, every time we have a hint of a recession, that dreaded R word, we start looking for when when's the government going to bail it out? Right. 
and that 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 doesn't that doesn't benefit anyone actually long term because it erodes the very basis of capitalism and it's what makes the capitalistic system work we've talked about this before plus it adds more and more debt of course you know we have this big concern right lately about de-dollarization and it's all due to the debt and we're going to keep running up the debt you know we're spending more than we've got coming in in revenues and that just keeps continuing and the deficits keep growing oh my gosh it's yeah, we, we keep doing that. But at the same time that we want to complain about that, we want to also complain about, well, you know, if we're going to have a recession, we need a bailout. Can't have both. You've either got to give in to the idea that, well, we're now just Japan and we're going to continue to just bail out the economy irregardless of the outcomes. Terrible use of grammar. Regardless of the outcome or we can allow the capitalistic system to begin to function again but that's very painful and see nobody wants the pain right you know this is the whole problem with social security we talk about this everybody everybody's worried that social security is going to run out of money in 2025 or whatever the number is now it changes every year but at the same time, well, you know, we don't want to do anything about it because I don't want to give up my benefits. You know, I'm not going to give up my Social Security benefits. If somebody else wants to do that, then they can do that. But I'm not going to give up mine, so nobody wants to do anything. And again, if you want to get elected as a politician, you know, you don't mess around with Jim Brown. I mean, it's just you don't mess with it because it's not going to get you elected. So... We keep doing what we do, which is we kind of ignore the, the you know, the 500-pound gorilla, and we just keep doing what we're doing. Because that's the easy route, right? That's the, that's the easy route to all of this. And so, you know, when we, when we take a look at, at all of this, you know, we keep, you know, we want to complain about all these things that are going on. But we don't want to do anything about it. You know, it's, it was interesting because, you know, we had these ESG rankings, and I was writing articles a couple of years ago when we first came out with these ESG rankings that these environmental social governance things, it was a terrible idea. It was a scam on investors. And here we are a couple of years later and everybody's shunning ESG now because, A, two reasons that we said back then was, is A, first of all, you can't measure these things. And so they're invalid variables. And the second thing is, is that as soon as energy outperforms, you know, ESG, <laughs> everybody forget about ESG and one energy, and that's exactly what happened, right? So energy stocks have been doing great, and that's where everybody wants to have their money. So, so much for that. But we try to keep coming up with all these measures to promote, you know, some type of social agenda, right? ESG rankings, or there's a there's a new one out now called, uh, what's it called? Um, the Woke Rating. By companies, this is why companies like Budweiser are putting, you know, transgender individuals on their beer cans and making everybody bad. So, um, you know, the whole point is, is that these are unmeasurable. They have nothing to do with how the company performs. What's their earnings? What are their sales? What are their fundamental variables? All these types of things. That's what 
that's what we invest in, right? That's the capitalism part of this whole cycle. Are they winning the capital game? And we keep forgetting that. We keep wanting we we keep wanting to come up with all these new measures to focus on some social agenda that has nothing to do with what are their sales? What's their profit margin? What's their use of, of capital? What's their use of debt? What are their liquidity ratios? The things that matter to a business. Or when am I going to get the next bailout? When am I going to get the next support? When are you going to start buying back stock? Right? Those aren't signs of a healthy environment. And this is this is the problem. But see, we don't we don't really want that, right? In order to get back to capitalism as a function, we've talked about this before, you've got to have a lot of pain. Because that's what capitalism is. The strong survive, the weak perish. That's the end of the story. But that's how capitalism creates opportunity. And you know, when you start moving into that structure where you no longer allow capitalism to function, you get some other breed of economy, but it's not capitalism. You know, we've talked about corporatism before here on the show, and that's a big problem, obviously. But when we start thinking about investing and investing for the long term, talking about fundamentals, that's what matters ultimately. All this other stuff is sideshows. And this is why when I was writing articles, you know, kind of bashing ESG a couple of years ago, I said, this isn't going to work out well. People are just changing the name of their fund to, you know, from the large cap growth fund to the ESG large cap fund. And people were throwing money into it, but they didn't change the underlying holdings at all. They just charged you three or four times as much. So you're paying more for the exact same crappy performance that the fund would put out before. And then guess what you got? You got crappy performance. And so now money's moving away from that. Not surprisingly. Now, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, investors vote with their feet. Right? It's always interesting. We always say consumers vote with their feet. No, nah, not really. People may be upset with Budweiser's recent campaign, right? They say, oh, I'm not going to drink Budweiser anymore. Um, um, uh, Kid Rock was shooting up cans of, you know, cases of, of Bud Light beer in protests. Okay, that's great. Bud Light stock is still going up. So nobody cares, right? It's not enough. There's not enough outrage for people to outright just ban buying Bud Light. And it's not just Bud Light. You've got to ban every product that Bud Light makes. You know, this is this is the whole problem when people want to protest oil companies, right? They go, well, don't go down to, to the uh, ExxonMobil station and buy gas anymore. ExxonMobil doesn't care. When you boycott that retail gas station at the corner of your neighborhood, the only person you hurt is your neighborhood and your neighbor that owns that gas station. Doesn't affect ExxonMobil at all because they sell the product to the retailer. The retailer then sells the end product. And also at the same time, you don't stop using all the products that are made from petroleum that come from ExxonMobil. 
like the plates, the forks, the clothes, the hairspray, the toothpaste, the toothbrush, the, you know, the tires on your car, the car, you know, <laughs> you don't stop watching television, buying televisions, your couch, your, you know, everything you touch is made up of a petroleum product. You can't consume it, use it, drink it without touching petroleum somewhere along the way. And this is the whole fallacy of let's go electric. Let's get out of the petroleum business. It's not going to happen. All you're doing is making yourself more dependent on China, which makes all of the rare earth metals that you need for electric vehicle companies. So or, or car, car manufacturers. So it, it, you're not helping anything besides polluting the planet more. So, but these are the things that we've got to sort through when we're investing. And this is the important part. As investors, we need to take all this social media virtue signaling commentary, set that aside and say, that's great. You know, you know, whatever that turns into is awesome. I'm not investing on that because that has nothing to do ultimately with how this company performs stock price wise. That's what we've got to get back to. And we need to figure out what this end game of never-ending bailouts and monetary accommodation means for returns. What we do know is that in order to have these monetary accommodations, it's requiring more and more of them to generate the same rates of return. And it all requires debt at the end of the day. We'll come back, finish up a conversation. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, just uh, getting ready to wrap up the show this morning. Um, again, you know, the, the thing about investing is that it's not complicated, it's not hard, it just takes work. And there's a lot of guesswork to it. And, and again, you've got to be willing to, to make a bet in one direction or the other. And this is where it gets complicated because, again, the things that we should be investing on, right, the, the fundamentals, as I was saying earlier, you know, cash flows, profit margins, those type of things, have been trumped by expectations of monetary accommodation, buybacks, things that artificially support earnings and support stock prices. And that's not really a, a, a free market. So this makes it more challenging. If we were investing in a free market, that is a pretty simple set of procedures. You buy 
cheap, fundamentally strong companies, you do well over time. That has not been the case since 2009. From 1900 to 2008, the stock market averaged, on average, about 8% a year. Now, that's a big fallacy, by the way. Stocks, yes, average 8%. But a lot of people say, oh, well, just invest in the market, buy and hold, and you'll get 8% a year return. That's not the way that works. But the average rate of return was 8% over that long period of time. From 2008 till 2022, the market averaged 12% a year. That's four full percentage points above the long-term average due to unprecedented rounds of quantitative easing, stock buybacks, zero interest rates, etc. So the question really becomes, you know, what are you going to do for me now? Right? What are you going to do to create that same 12% rate of annualized return going forward over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Unless you're intending on a never-ending series of quantitative easing programs, zero interest rates, etc. Which, if you do, that's fine, but that's not great for the economy. Take a look at Japan. Their, their rate of economic growth runs at about zero. So there's consequences to actions. We can have a booming stock market. We certainly can. But it's not great economically. Again, you know, we talk about this widening wealth gap. Top 10% of people own 90% of the stock market, et cetera, so forth and so on. And in fact, a good article out as an example of this. Now, if the stock market, and this is, this is always the fallacy of buy and hold, right? People go, oh, well, if you just buy and hold investments and contribute to your you know, 10% to your 401k plan, you'll be fine. Sounds great in theory. doesn't really work out that way. How do you know that? Well, because survey after survey after survey tells you the same story. We've had three major bull markets since 1980. You had the 1980 to 2000 bull market. You had the bull market from 2003 to 2008. Then you had a bull market from 2000. You had the bull market of bull markets from 2009 till present. And after three major bull markets, which encompass boomers, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Zs, etc., why is it that you have stats that say 29% of people? don't expect to have any money for retirement. And roughly 84% say they have no retirement at all, basically. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. And this is survey after survey after survey. How, can you come up with $500 for an emergency? 80% of people, no, I can't. Got to go to credit card for that. So that certainly doesn't suggest that the market is functioning properly and that, B, individuals aren't managing properly. In other words, they're living beyond their means. We live in a capitalistic society. That's all we promote is how to buy more and more stuff. Oh, don't worry. If you can't pay for it, here's a credit card, right? Got to go to Disney World. Got to get that in. Put it on credit. Then the bill comes to 
But you only live once, right? You got to do this stuff because YOLO. This is the idea. I don't have any money, but I can charge it now. I can have the experience today, and I'll worry about it later. That's awesome. And then you get to these retirement statistics. Most workers expect to fall short of a comfortable retirement. Let me give you a sad state of affairs is that a comfortable retirement does not exist on a million dollars. It's not hard math to figure out that at 4% on the 10-year treasury, a million dollars generates you $40,000 a year to live on. The average lifestyle requires about 55 to 60. And if you have any family requirements at all, not to mention health care, you're toast. But 29% of Americans, I'm sorry, let me back up. 29% of millennials expect to need at least $1.3 million to retire comfortably. 21% need over a million of 1.1. of millennials, optimistically, they think they need less than 500000 to have a comfortable retirement versus 59%. And 27% think they can retire on $250,000 or less, along with 34% of boomers. The problem is, is they're nowhere close to these numbers. We take a look at the average rate of return uh, for investors over time. I'm actually writing an article on this now. Uh, be out tomorrow, actually. Average rate of return for investors falls well short of what the market does because of bad investing habits and cycles and not managing money properly. But the other side of this also is, is that the expectations are always wrong. You know, it's always interesting. I meet with people and like, oh, when I retire, I'm going to live on $2,000 a month. Okay. What are you spending now? Oh, I spend about 10 grand a month now. You're not going from 10 grand a month now to $2,000 a month in retirement. That ain't going to happen. So if you're spending 10 grand, I'm just throwing out numbers, but if you're spending 10 grand a month now, $120,000 a year, and that's your lifestyle requirement, you've got to plan on that plus healthcare cost. In retirement. Now, what do you need at 4% to make that work? All of a sudden, those numbers start to go up a lot, right? It's no longer a million. It's 3 million. It's 4 million. It's 5 million for retirement. And so this is this is the problem. This is why so many older Americans are still working well into retirement. And we hear all these, these stories about, oh, well, you know, the labor force participation rate, you got to adjust that for all the people retiring. They're not retiring. They can't retire. They don't have the money for it. Yes, there are some that retire, right? They got a pension at work, or they have this, and they have, you know, they have a drop program if they're a police officer. They can retire. A lot of people don't have that choice. They're going to be working until they're on the dead plan, as uh, Richard Ross always says, diet desk. And they're going to have to work in retirement because they simply don't have enough money. To retire on it's just and the cost of living obviously with inflation running high that's that's a big problem and so you know this is the so when it comes back to investing we've got to have a realistic expectation of a what returns are going to be b the market's not going to make you rich i want if you take nothing away from the conversation this morning i want you to take this one statement away from you the market is not going to make you rich all the market is there for is to make sure your savings adjust for inflation over time that is it. And that's if you do it correctly, it will adjust for inflation over time. If you do it incorrectly, the market will take your money away from you. 
and give it to people who are doing it correctly. But you can't take $250,000 as an example and turn that into your wealth, your wealth retirement program. That ain't going to happen. You're going to have to contribute every month to that savings account. Your, your wealth will come from what you save. What the investing will do is make sure that those savings adjust for inflation. And that should be your expectation, no more, no less, because that's what the market does. If you turn the market into a casino, expecting that it will take your savings and turn that into a, a gold pot for you to retire on, all you're going to wind up with is an empty pot because the casino will take the, market, the money away from you. That's how casinos work. House always wins. So if you're going into the market and, you know, I get emails from people and it's like, well, if I could just make 15% a year on, on my money, you know, I'll be good. If I could generate 15% every single year, I wouldn't be talking to you this morning. I'd be on a beach. <laughs> you know, I can make money for you. Absolutely. I can grow your money. Absolutely. But the core of your wealth building is not going to come from what the, the portfolio generates. The core of your wealth building would come from what you save. People who save aggressively, live conservatively, they have money. The markets will do some of the work for you, and it will make sure that those savings adjust for inflation so that you have the same purchasing power in the future on those savings that you have currently. And that's the measure that you need to be looking for. Because if just beating the market every year worked, if I could just buy an ETF and beat the market every year and that worked, then why do 80% of Americans not have any money in the bank after three major bull markets? Think about it. All right. I know, depressing show this morning. Apologize. Tomorrow we'll do something fun. We'll have Brent dress up in a clown suit or something. Anyway, have a good day. Get by the website. Our latest article is out on the reverse repo, explaining what that is, what it means. Is it Does it matter? That's all in our newsletter from this weekend. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, make sure that you click on the link to subscribe to our Before the Bell channel, as well as this channel, and click that little bell icon so you get notified every time we post a new video. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.